You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Remembering Fred Rice, the grandfather of the captive industry, founded in Bermuda in the 1960s. Why? Fred Rice, as I said, was the grandfather of the captive industry, and it recorded exponential growth over five decades, distinguishing Bermuda as the world captive leader and fueling the foundation of the island's entire insurance and reinsurance industry. Fred's son, Jonathan Rice, is the Managing Director of Strategic Risk Solutions, and he shares some of his family's history and legacy. I'm going to be joined by Kathy Duffy, author of Held Captive, and the first inaugural recipient of the Fred Rice Lifetime Achievement Award, Jill Husbands. Join me in the conversation. First, to introduce the topic, I'm wondering, as I say captive, are you thinking prisoner? Far be it. Captives can offer freedom. They're vehicles to take the liability you would have transferred to an insurer if you can, and it turns it into an alternative risk transfer option. Captives are one of those options. They offer broader selections as well. Sometimes markets struggle to take the risks that need to be placed with traditional insurance and reinsurers. Then what? Under the right conditions, a captive may provide a solution. Think of it this way. In your personal life, you have life insurance to cover the risk of perhaps your early or unexpected death. You have property insurance to cover any catastrophic situations that may arise, say fire, earthquake, travel insurance. And basically, in your personal life, you try to manage the uncertainties. And also, this is the same for organizations. They seek coverage for the liabilities and risks of doing business. Moreover, organizations have obligations, Regulations and legal requirements need to secure insurance to be in good standing with the lawmakers and the regulators. A captive becomes that insurer, basically self-insuring those liabilities that are uninsurable or those that are high-frequency risks. And also, you can obtain direct access to reinsurers. It's a strategic risk management tool. A captive can be formed for an organization an industry, it gives greater control of your insurance program and the choices around whether to take on some or all of the risks that you have going into that business. And it offers you the opportunity to transfer some or all of those risks to an insurer or a reinsurer. I'll explain further soon. Let me tell you a story. Over the decades, my career has evolved around captives. First, I started off as a young professional managing the database, well, the administrator for the database for the American bankers. They had the largest captive in the world in the 80s when I was doing this. Then I had an opportunity to do broking for the Fortune 500. There were some ginormous risks that needed to be placed, and some of those risks were not always insurable or even affordably insurable. So the group that I worked with also had an arm that provided captives. After that, I went off to law school. And while I was at law school, I had the opportunity to again, to circle back on why are captives so important. Bermuda 
has been deeply involved in astronomy and brokering stoastic time. The island was not only tracking aerospace launches, but reinsuring them as well. Fred Rice formed the first modern captive in 1962 in Bermuda. Keep in mind, from the beginning of the 1960s, Bermuda was part of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, better known as NASA, and their worldwide support network. It was one of the tracking stations for the U.S. space projects, and it was housed in Bermuda on Cooper's Island between 1961 and 1997 and came back again in 2012. The primary task was for the island station to provide Goddard Space Flight Center with trajectory data for flight missions and making the decision whether there was a need to use the Atlantic Ocean as an aborted landing area. Thus, they had the chance to watch the aerospace industry in motion and in the late 1980s, I saw the development of communications technology and the demand for utilizing commercial operations in orbit. By the 1990s, captive insurance had become a global industry and Bermuda a major player. In the early 1990s, I also followed industry initiatives, brokerage satellite dealings, and I read very widely as well around launch activity. One of my favorite books was The Use of Aerospace and Outer Space for All Mankind in the 21st Century. <laughs> and this was part of an international conference that was held in Tokyo in 1993. So the 1990s was a time for fast development of aerospace. And I saw opportunities opening up for commercialization of spacecraft and satellite. Given the critical and essential nature of the aerospace industry for both commercial and military sectors, there was a need to place these volatile risks in the market. So I got an up-close look at the properties of kismet time, that's time involved in calamities, catastrophe, disaster, and misfortune. After law school, I came back and I was working as an in-house counsel for a multinational and I was teaching at a local educator provider, and I was teaching risk management and American law for insurance. I was asked to chair a committee which came up with the Lifetime Achiever Award and the Market Leader Award. Fred Rice, the grandfather of the captive industry, was the first recipient posthumously because he had died in 1993. By the turn of last century, my engagement with captives had come around in a variety of ways. So why captives? They provide a strategic risk tool. They can bring the captive owners or users cutting-edge solutions for those things that are too difficult for risk financing. It's also a key aspect as a solution because it gives greater control over the insurance program. There are innumerable service providers. Who gets involved? Attorneys, third-party administrators, brokers, captive managers, actuaries, just to name a few. But they all come together to work on the goals that the program is designed to achieve. Why is this important? Well, I think there is this triangle of stress that leads to why captives are considered. This includes increased pricing of insurance and reinsurance, the capacity of the market to accept the risk or risks, and the breadth of coverage, which can be further compromised by a constrictive use of severe terms and conditions being applied to the risk. Captives are formed for creating capacity and opportunity in changing markets. They're also a valuable tool for the placement of unique risks. 
So who utilizes the captive? You may be involved without even knowing it. It crosses organizations and industries. Take, for example, there are captives for the construction industry, transportation, healthcare, manufacturing, real estate, retail, restaurants, hospitality, marine, I could go on. The risk profile, where an industry or organization may need help, they may use a captive for employee benefits. You may not know that this is holding your benefits as well. They might use it for professional management of people risk, options for decline risks, for resolving traditional barriers to entry, punitive pricing. Markets are cyclical. Managing a hard market or a hardening market means you may be faced with higher prices or price volatility. A captive can take out the troughs and the hikes of pricing and capacity. You may need the flexibility of a captive. One of their benefits is they access reinsurance in a host of markets that may not be available to you through traditional reinsurance. Consider the global risk landscapes. They call for multinational pooling of risk. There's changing of risk management needs and planning, long-term risk financing, managing risk appetite, complementing traditional insurance placements, filling coverage gaps, there are micro-captives, insurance programs, alternative risk solutions. I will have an excellent glossary link in the show notes if you are even curious to know more about what those terms mean. So why is this important? Well, we are in a post-pandemic world. We need new resiliency. We need to manage new and emerging risks. Do you know the impact on society and industry? What does the risk landscape look like? It's an unknown for the short-term, long-term impacts and uncertainty. Take, for example, we do not know how COVID-19 will impact the insurability of, let's take the senior care market. Who doesn't know or have a relative who is in need of assisted living or care as a senior? Well, this is a hardened market for the senior care industry, and there is a role for captives. Add to that the coronavirus. It brought the longest U.S. economic expansion to a full stop. Add in physical distancing measures, lockdowns, the resulting historic collapse in economic activity, closed down cities, states, countries. Business insurance reported recently of two interesting outcomes. So do you know directors and officers insurance? Are you a director? Are you an officer? Well, Business insurance reported that management liability risks are increasing due to this global pandemic and other claim trends. Some insurers are struggling to address rising frequency and severity. So there are needs for new solutions to be delivered. On the other hand, Qatar insurers, their profits rose by 19% despite the pandemic. According to the data, the Qatar Stock Exchange listed insurers increased it and posted a 19% year-on-year growth in aggregate profit to 500 million, or I think that would be like about 137 million US in 2020, even though there was a pandemic. So if that hasn't got your eyebrows raising, consider this. The post-COVID landscape is still evolving. We don't know what the new and novel risks will be. Moreover, can you place these risks in the traditional marketplace? If not, where are you considering the global risk landscape? Do you need the option of a multinational pooling of risk? 
Are you up to date with the changing risk management needs? Planning long-term risk financing, managing your risk appetite, needing to complement your traditional insurance placements. Might you discover that you have coverage gaps to fill? So you may actually be exploring a captive or after this, considering it. You might have these questions. Why should you consider a captive? Is it right for your business? Are there advantages? What are the types of captives to consider? How to set up a captive? Well, going back to business insurance again, they have a captive directory and they have a list of 2021 captive managers and domiciles and they have them ranked for you. There will be a link in the show notes. The captive industry is peppered with way showers and trailblazers. It has to be. Fred Rice led the way. What does it mean to be a leader in the context of exponential technologies and disruptive rapidity of change? I would humbly suggest, first, be more intentional and intelligent about the future we're creating. Second, being adaptive and willing to thrive in a future that looks nothing like the past. Third, be able to bring your best global thinking with the best and local insight. The face of familiarity and safety keeps us locked in the past and may not be viable. It's a new century, a post-pandemic world and a new decade. Let me introduce my guests. Jonathan Rice, son of Fred, is a corporate leader who courageously speaks out with regards to diversity and inclusion. He's also the Managing Director of Strategic Risk Solutions. I invite Jonathan because he cares very deeply about DNI and the culture of business. For this episode, he shares the history behind his father's lead up to initiating the captive industry. Kathy Duffy is the author of Held Captive, a book that captures the institutional history and development of the sector. Following her, the Fred Rice Lifetime Achievement Award launched in 2016 in the name of Fred Rice. He evolved this idea of self-insurance and strategic management of risks through a dedicated subsidiary. And the first recipient is Jill Husbands, former chairman and managing director of Marsh Bermuda. The second recipient was Michael J. Burns. He is a Bermuda lawyer who is part of the Bermuda Regulator and heads up legal and enforcement. The third recipient was Brian Hall, an industry icon and former director and president of Johnson & Higgins. And the most recent awardee is the executive chair of the BMA, Jeremy Cox. He was recognized for his contributions to the Bermuda insurance industry and financial service sectors. And that was 2019. There hasn't been another one since. So today we have Jonathan, Kathy, and Jill. And I hope in the future to have Mr. Burns and Mr. Cox from the regulator come on and share their thoughts around the sector. Thank you for joining me. Today I have with me Jonathan Rice, and Jonathan Rice has a wonderful story, a heritage, and leans into a legacy that was started a generation before. Jonathan, welcome to the episode. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to have the opportunity to remember your father, Fred Rice, the grandfather of the captive industry, as he's called out there. Could you just kind of tell us how you came to be in Bermuda? Uh, sure. I mean, it, it's all credit to my father, Fred Rice. 
He grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and he came from a modest family and, and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Harvard. And then he returned to the Cleveland area uh, with an engineering philosophy degrees from Harvard. And he started out in a safety inspector working for you know risk managers in the insurance industry. He went down in like, the coal mines and uh, did safety inspections for insurance companies. But he, he ultimately became an, a, an insurance agent, and his clients were the large steel companies in the Ohio-Pittsburgh region, and they couldn't always buy the uh, insurance coverages they needed. You know, insurance companies often have prescribed policies, and they didn't always match up with his clients' needs. And my father loved to travel, and he, he, he made his way over to London, and he met some very innovative people at Lloyd's of London, and he discovered that really most of the risk ended up there anyway. And they were much more flexible in terms of the types of coverage they'd offer. And so this, this is how the idea of a captive uh, was spawned. He realized that if he could actually design the structures he wanted to for his clients, but the risk was ending up at Lloyd's anyway. It's just that the insurance companies in the U.S. weren't flexible. So he discovered the concept of steel company, in this case, forming its own insurance company to provide its own customized insurance solution. And then the risk could pass straight to Lloyd's market where they were quite happy to be flexible. The only problem was he needed a jurisdiction with which to give birth to these insurance companies. And it wasn't easy because insurance regulation is, well, insurance is very heavily regulated in most large countries. So where could you find a jurisdiction that would be uh, willing to be innovative, but still have things like the uh, Bermuda has so much advantages, the, the British system of law. But he didn't actually start out in, in Bermuda. He actually first went down to the Bahamas and the Bermuda reinsurance industry could well have been in the Bahamas, but they weren't quite as, uh, I guess, intuitive as Bermuda. And, and in the end, Bermuda ended up being choice location. And that's how Bermuda became the center of gravity for the captive insurance industry, which it still is. Absolutely. I used to love to tell my students the story about your father. I taught American law for insurance and I also taught risk management, the ARM. And, you know, they didn't know the history, exactly what you said. You know, it was just, it nearly, this industry did not, nearly did not land here. It could have very easily gone somewhere else. And boy, what a difference it makes because when you look at companies like ACE, going into underwriting satellites and rockets, which is amazing. We wouldn't have this sort of like technology and the internet of the stars coming up without that kind of underwriting as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think you got, a lot of credit needs to go to, there was very innovative people at Lloyd's of London who without them, Fred probably wouldn't have been successful. And, and there were people in Bermuda who helped him in a way that wasn't available elsewhere. I do want to make one other little historical point because I think people always enjoy this. But the term, you know, my father was credited with coining the term captive. A lot of people in the industry, including people who have worked in the captive industry all their lives, don't know where that term came from. And it came from actually the steel industry. The steel, big U.S. steel companies, their factories would shut down if they didn't they didn't have enough coal. They, they relied on the delivery of coal, and sometimes there was blockages in the del- delivery of coal. And these these big companies would get frustrated that it would cost a lot of money if their factories had to shut down. So they ended up doing, you know, I think it's called vertical integration. They ended up buying their own coal mines so they didn't have to rely on other people to deliver their coal. And the mines that each steel company owned were called captives. So that's where the term captive comes from in the insurance industry. So it's basically from coal mines owned by steel companies. First, I should thank you for, you know, being one of the committee, the chair of the committee that nominated my father for that award. That that was, I think, the Bermuda Insurance Institute Awards first. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so here's an funny, interesting tidbit. So that, my father was given that award, and it was back then, the awards for quite a number of years were big gala dinner events. And 
My father had the great honor, thanks to you and others uh, on the committee, being the first ever recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award. And so I was there with my sister to, and my stepmother, Debbie, to posthumously accept the award. And Brian Dupro was the first recipient of the Insurance Person of the Year, market leader. Yes. Okay. So he, yeah. so he was there. And so I, I, I really met him for the first time there. And I ended up working for Brian at Hamilton Insurance Group you know, m- many years later. So that was a wonderful connection. But even better, after I received the award that night, and I gave a little very short speech, I met my wife that night. Welcome, Kathy Duffy. She is the author of Held Captive. What specifically did you want to know about the book, Michelle? Well, Fred Rice, he's the grandfather of captives. Uh huh. How do you see his place in terms of contribution to the island and how captives contribute to the island? Well, you know, the interesting thing is the concept of captives was around before Fred Rice actually took it to the next level. It was the oil companies who needed a solution for them to carry their products around during wartime. And they actually came up with a concept of captives. But it was actually Fred Rice who took that concept because he recognized in about the 50s and 60s that some companies were having difficulty placing coverages and recognized that these companies could actually start taking those risks on themselves into their balance sheets. So he was the one who took that concept from the energy industry to a much broader range of clients when he first was trying to find a jurisdiction for it, he couldn't. He was traveling near and far trying to find jurisdiction that could actually allow the captive industry to take off. And he just happened to be in London and have dinner with someone who ran Lloyd's or had a Lloyd syndicate, as well as Bill Kemp. And why can't I think of his name right now? Um, He was very instrumental in the law world as well. I can't think of his name. Hopefully it'll come to me later. But they were all at this lunch. I said dinner. They were all at a lunch uh, on a Sunday afternoon. And Bill Kemp was very keen on putting Bermuda on the map for getting international business here after AIG set up AICO here for their international operations in 1947. So as a result of that, the industry here started to think we could make put Bermuda on the map for international business. So Bill Kemp was out marketing and he told Fred Rice about Bermuda. Fred Rice didn't even wait for Bill Kemp to come back to Bermuda. He just flew to Bermuda and ended up meeting with Sir Henry Tucker who also was out there marketing the benefits of Bermuda and at that time was running the Bank of Bermuda, spoke to him, and that is how the whole captive industry took off, a chance meeting, and at a time when Bermuda was trying to put itself on the map. But it didn't happen right away either because the captives didn't come until the market started shifting in the 60s. After a few hurricanes happened, there were a few a large oil losses, and the real surge in captives started to happen after the 1970s. But he had persistence. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, such persistence that um, in 2020, there was a large number of um, new captives registered here. And the gross premium written is approximately $40 billion, according to the Bermuda Monetary Authority. I'll put mm-hmm. statistics in the show notes for people to see because it's that's like huge money. But it also mm-hmm. created a solution, didn't it? It created a solution for business being able to retain and manage their own risk as well. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how did you come to write the book, Held Captive? What was the driver behind that? Well, I had taken a sabbatical from the industry, had my son and decided that I wanted to stay at home, never thinking that I would do that because I was at the height of my career as well, right? So it really surprised me, my husband and everybody else around me, that I decided to step away from a high-profile career to be a full-time mom. But my mother died suddenly when I was 13, and you don't realize the impact that those, those tragedies have on you until much later. So becoming a mother myself, and I vowed actually when I was young, that I was never going to be my mother, that I was going to be this career woman that was independent and had her own source of income and all sorts of things. So it really shocked me that I realized just how critical the role of a mother is. And that's not to disparage any woman who decides to continue to work. Each woman has the right to do and should do what feels right to her and to her family. There's no right or wrong way to do things. It's just where we are in our lives. And I always caveat that because, you know, some people try to pit one side against the other and there is no right or wrong. It's just what feels right to you and your family. But for me, that felt right for me to stay home with my son. And during that time, you know, I was trying to figure out ways that I could stay home for as long as possible. And I started to write columns for the Bermuda Sun. That was a spiritual column, actually, about how I journeyed from being a career woman to a full-time mom. And the feedback was so great that it expanded into just a spiritual column. And then it got so big that people were like living off of my every word that it scared me. So I stopped writing the column and decided to do something more technical. And the, the Royal Gazette had asked me to write something about the insurance industry. And then it, it got so much feedback that they asked me to write a Monday column for them on insurance, which I started to do. And what was interesting about that is I started having all sorts of analysts from around the world calling to ask my, <laughs> my opinion on things, which is kind of laughable. But anyway, it, it just shows that, you know, none of us have the answers. We all just need to help each other to collaborate. And from me doing that column, Brian Hall then asked me if I would write the book about the history of international insurance in Bermuda. And I naively thought that there was already something like it, but he just wanted me to expand on it. And once I started doing the research and trying to figure out what the intention of the book was, I realized that I was completely in uncharted territory. There was nothing that had set out any basis for the international insurance industry. So I had to set up an Excel spreadsheet just to try to find trends or what, how the book was going to be best laid out. I interviewed over a hundred people because I had to figure out where this all started from. And thankfully, I got to several of these people before they passed away. And once I started to get the information and put it in years, I realized that there was a trend that was occurring. And that trend was that every 10 years after the 60s, the world changed and Bermuda responded by doing captives in the 70s and the 80s, exile and ACE reform because of pharmaceutical problems, medical malpractice, tort liability going through the window, the roof, I should say, windows not high enough. And then we had finite risk with uh, Santorini. In the 90s, we had some of the hurricanes that happened. 
2000, again, hurricane. So we've responded every 10 years. This keeps sliding. Uh, every 10 years, Bermuda has responded to the world in providing solutions for global stability. And that's something that a lot of people don't recognize. You know, they think of Bermuda in isolation. A lot of people think of us as a, as a tax haven. A lot of people think that we're a fly-by-night type jurisdiction. But, you know, honestly speaking, without Bermuda, a lot of the world would have been destabilized. So we have provided solutions for companies, communities, countries, people globally. And that's all thanks to people like Fred Rice, who had foresight, the people that came in the 80s and the 90s. So without them, we just wouldn't be where we are. Absolutely. And in fact, I remember when I was working at ACE, at the time, I did not realize that financing through reinsurance, rockets and satellites is how we have this godlike technology today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Without absolutely. Bermuda was the US base that released the rockets going up. So yeah. we have this part to play that's incredibly important. Yeah. When looked at more deeply, sensationalizing it misses the total point of the massive contribution. Yeah. And Bermuda is the host of not only global organizations but global players absolutely have, have a heart for for the world and the outer cosmos which is right. very powerful okay. and we're not called the incubator for the world for no reason at all it's because we allow companies to form ideas here and then they branch out globally after that Welcome. Jill Husbands joins us. She is the first inaugural recipient of the Fred Rice Lifetime Achievement Award. So how did you come to Bermuda? How did that come about? Okay, well, I guess that was another funny story, really. I took a year off from work in London and travelled. So I backpacked around the world. And uh, that was a wonderful experience. On that trip, I met an Australian girl who had actually come to Bermuda. She was a nurse. So she had come to Bermuda to work. You know, she said, and we were really good friends. So she said, oh, why don't you come for a holiday? So I said, oh, yes, that would be fantastic. I'll come for a holiday. So I came to Bermuda on vacation, had two wonderful weeks here, went back to London. That was the end of that. And then by this stage, I'd actually moved from underwriting to broking. I was a reinsurance broker by then. So I was sitting at my desk in 10 Trinity Square, which is an iconic building in London. And that's where Willis Faber were again in those days. And the phone rang. And I guess one of the things is being a female in the market, especially in the aviation market back in those days, there were so few of us that, you know, a lot of the guys teased us. And I mean, you know, it, it was all sort of good fun, really. So this gentleman was at the other end of the telephone and said, oh, hello, Jill. And I'm thinking, gosh, I don't recognize this voice, but I didn't really want to say anything. I wanted to try and see if I could figure out who it was. And they said, would you be interested in a job in Bermuda? And I thought, oh, okay, this is just a big joke. They know I've just come back from two weeks vacation. So I played along and I said, oh, yes, yes, I'm interested. That would be fun. And they said, oh, well, can you come to an interview, uh, blah, blah. So I said, absolutely sure. And I, because I thought, okay, I'm going to get my own back on you because I know you're just, this is just a joke, right? But of course, when I got there, it wasn't a joke. It was a real interview. So I started off by explaining that I thought it was a joke, which I'm sure the person doing the interviewing must have thought was a bit odd. But anyway, at the end of the day, they offered me the job and I decided to take it. 
for two years. And partly because I was fairly ambitious. And and more than that, I really wanted to be taken seriously. And this was a promotion for me coming to Bermuda. And so I thought it would be good experience. So that was how I came to Bermuda. Wow. Um, I actually, after... I mentioned to you earlier that I had had a chance to be an administrator of one of the largest captives in the world, the American Bankers Association. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, databases. Every key I pressed on the computer, I sat there with my hands in a prayer position saying, don't delete the whole bloody database. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those programs were so wacky. They were. So fortunately, it didn't happen. But one day, Bob Whiting came out of his office and they'd lost another broker. And he said, oh, he says, you're friendly, you're articulate, and I think you can be charming. Do you want to be a broker? And I'm thinking, what's a broker? So like yourself, I wanted to be taken seriously. So I'm like, oh, sure. And this was in the, in the 80s, anyway, late 80s. So next thing I know, I'm broking to the Fortune 500, sitting in boardrooms of many black suits and men. And fortunately, being the mother of two sons, I could give them the mother look and have a little bit of constructive control and be t- and a little respect. Right, 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 right. But there were only like two or three of us, possibly four women doing this. And we were quite isolated. And there was one other woman and I, we were quite collaborative, but the other two weren't. They were very competitive. So there was these mixed messages and lack of trust as well. And, and within the women's groups, I think, which was a little bit challenging. Yeah, yeah. I, I think by that stage you were at Marsh in the 80s, weren't you? Did you come over to... No, I came over to Bermuda as still as an aviation underwriter in the aviation market for an insurer. But that insurer closed down. In, um, I came in 78. The insurance company closed down in 89. Right, in 80. No, is that right? No, that's completely wrong. Anyway, it closed down five years later. We're in 83. That's right, when my eldest son was born. I then took a year off and my eldest son was born. And then after that, even though I did enjoy being home with him, I did. And I have a huge respect for women that choose to stay home with their children. Because in that year, I found out it's really not very easy. It's actually very hard. And harder, I believe, than being at work. For me, it certainly was. Um, I totally agree with you. My husband and I had an agreement. I'd spend the first five years home with them. Let me tell you, I was counting down to an empty nest to primary school. But no, I I went to work and I was like, gosh, you get tea breaks, you get lunch. (laughs) I know, I know. You have conversations with adults. I was just about to say that. That's actually exactly what I actually missed, were conversations with adults about adult subjects, you know, not about what uh, my son did today and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so I stayed home a year and then I joined Johnson & Higgins that, you know, then turned into Marsh after um, Marsh bought J&H. So from when I started at J&H until I retired, I was with the organization an extremely long time. (laughs) But again, I enjoyed it. And that was when I entered the captive insurance industry. So that was late in 1983, uh, very late in the year, just after my son's first birthday. So I joined as what was called an insurance officer, which really was the person that designs and organizes the insurance programs that clients put into their captives. 
And I did that for several years. And then I became manager of that department. And then I moved on to the sales side, which I must say I really enjoyed as well. Also, I think this was actually one of the most, and I give Brian Hall and Roger Gillett credit for this because they gave me this time. We have been talking about trying to um, put a particular product together, a new product that hadn't sort of existed before. And I kept talking about it because I believed in it and that sort of thing. And so they said, okay, take a year and see if you can actually get this up and running. So that was a bit of a risk because I didn't know what I would be doing at the end of the year if I didn't get it up and running. And I worked very closely with a, a gentleman who's to this day a very good friend, Glenn Weber. He was in our New York office. And Glenn and I worked for a year putting Green Island together. And uh, a lot of the tech, uh, the sort of the US technical knowledge came from Glenn. I sort of supported him and helped sort of on the sales side and that sort of thing. So in 1997, before got, you go on, we got can you explain what the Green Island Treaty is? Because may not be insurance professionals listening. Oh, okay. Well, it's sort of like, it's really just where people share risk with each other. It, that's sort of the easiest way to describe it. It's based on the law of large numbers. You know, clearly huge insurance companies have large balance sheets. And so they're able to sustain the ups and downs of the small individual risks. Well, many large Fortune 500 companies have very large deductibles. They have to have large deductibles. They're imposed on them. And so, but those deductibles can still create a significant amount of fluctuation from year to year in loss. And companies don't want that. They want predictability. They don't want fluctuation for very obvious reasons. And so, so Green Island brought stability to those low-end deductibles that the Fortune 5000 companies have. And so, um, and so we went from there. I had two more sons along the way. I don't know, the years sort of just went whizzing past, I have to say that. And eventually I became the head of the Bermuda office of Marsh Captive Management. And then I became the chairman of Marsh McLennan Companies in Bermuda just before I retired. Just before you go on, can you explain what a captive is and why it's so important in the market? Oh, okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> a captive is an insurance company that's owned by a corporation. So owned by an airline, owned by a retail chain, owned by, you know, what, whatever the corporation does, a steel manufacturer, a car manufacturer. And it's principally to ensure their deductibles. And also when there's a hard insurance market, when there's lacking in capacity. So for instance, you know, like in 1985, 1986, when ACE and XL were formed, they were all formed because of lack of capacity in the traditional market. And so companies use, or certainly back then when there was a huge lack of capacity, used their captives to fill some of those holes so that they did actually have funding for those losses as and when they have. And also captives can be well, much the same as the captive you worked for. They can also be groups of people in the same industry who come together because there's a particular need. You know, there's a particular shortage of capacity in whatever industry they're in, and they all come get together 
and insure each other again so that there's stability for the individual companies. Absolutely. So for the Bankers Association, it was fidelity insurance. If a, you know, if you basically, as a person who has your banking with a bank, there's a surcharge and the bank also, you know, collects those surcharges up for part of it right. to cover insuring any failures of any of the banks in their group. Absolutely. And ACE and Excel, they came in to fill the gap of excess property risks and also directors and officers. I remember when I was broking, they provided directors and officers coverage from 5 million to 25 million. So there was a gap and nobody was doing that gap in the market. So if you, right. if you got caught in that gap, you had nothing. So, yeah. you know, this is how they came in to fill, as an example of filling the capacity. Right, exactly. And of course, they were actually just big captains when they formed. Yes. So, and, and as I'm sure you know, Marsh was very involved in the creation of both ACE and Excel. They were just huge group captives. You know, to be able to buy insurance, you had to be an insured in the early days. You had to be a shareholder. But anyway, you know, we've obviously gone a long way from uh, from, the, <laughs> from those days. And Absolutely. If you don't mind, I'm just going to pop one little fact in here because we're talking about the 1980s. And the Bermuda Monetary Authority, the regulator, in February 2021, released that as of December, there was approximately 40 billion in the Bermuda captive insurance market. You know, that's significant because those are global companies, right? And Bermuda has 680 captives. So, you know, that's huge growth. It is. I mean, probably the numbers of captives may have come down. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But because there've been a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the years of various companies, and I think the numbers of captives have probably come down, but I think the size of those captives and the capacity that they have you know, on their balance sheet has definitely grown significantly. Yes, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah, so the current status is there are 680 and 40 billion, I would imagine that's US dollars. So that's today. And of yes, course, it would have been bigger over the decades. I agree with you that it was massive in the 90s and things like that. So, yes, back to your story. Oh, well, that, that's it, really. So I think it was, was a journey. Oh, another thing I just, I guess I would like to just chat about because I sort of actually really believe in this. So I've always believed that when you get to a certain point or a certain position, it sort of, I felt it was my job to ensure that I have people behind me who could take over and also that I could would step away so that they could still enjoy the career that I had enjoyed. I was very lucky in, in that regard as well. I had a great team behind me, a wonderful team. And so I just decided one morning, I just woke up and said, okay, now's the time to retire. And I called New York on that that same day and told them I'd made the decision. We put a plan in place. The plan was actually 15 months in length, but you know, it was a great plan. It was good for me, good for them. And uh, then almost four years ago, I retired and you move on to the next part of your life. 
Absolutely. Um, but I want to just pause and recognize that you were the inaugural Fred Rice Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. I mean, that's the very first. And as a woman, you stepped up for all of us and showing us what a career journey could look like if you're courageous and stepping into it. And I know you've been a conscious steward of this space. So I want to say thank you. Well, <laughs> husband, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. I was. I was shocked. I don't know. I, I was shocked that I was the first recipient. Uh, very proud, though. It was a very humbling and proud moment for me to have my peers, who were mostly men, recognize me and give that to me. It was yeah, like a pinnacle, really, of my career because I had, in fact, I don't know. I don't think they would have known I had made the decision, but I had made the decision to retire and New York, you know, Marsh, New York, and I had put this plan into place, but it hadn't been announced that I was going to retire. Yes, it, it was a wonderful thing uh, and still is a wonderful thing for me. And we never know how these decisions are going to ripple out because when I came back from law school, I had the chance to teach at the Bermuda Insurance Institute. Yeah. So I was a very big fan of, I, I loved the market evolved in terms of meeting the needs and creating opportunity so that global companies could do what they needed to do. You know, things like our godlike technology, like the internet and the satellites, we were, we were underwriting that. You know, we had satellite insurance in the 90s. But for me, I was teaching at the Bermuda Insurance Institute, and I was invited to chair a committee to set up, to decide how could we recognize people in the marketplace. And the committee came up with the Lifetime Achievement Award and the Market Leader in the late 90s. Oh, right. So because of my knowledge of history, and Roger Scotton was another yeah. one, you know, Fred Rice was the choice. Oh, Fred Rice, you know, I felt, and I'm sure Roger did as well, yeah, he shared in the passion for this. And we recognized him posthumously. So he was the first award recipient. I think it was 1998 or 99. And here you are. The award has moved over to him, uh, over to being the Fred Rice Lifetime Achievement Award started in 2016. And you're the first recipient. So it's wonderful how this has come full circle in terms of a woman was chairing the committee yes, to start yes, it recognizing a man who had, you know, posthumously on a committee that was forward thinking enough. And I think it comes down to something you and I both do. We make the path by walking it. You know, there were no women brokers. There, you know, no. there weren't women underwriting in aviation. We had no one to emulate um, in, in some of the areas we've moved into. <laughs> So for that is a beautiful legacy. And I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to capture your thoughts and share those so that others can be inspired by what oh, you've done. Well, I, you're welcome. And I just want to end also by saying, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in our industry, not just for women, but for all minorities. I do see that there are, there have definitely been huge strides, especially for women. But I think that, there is more work that the industry needs to do for minorities. And I'm hoping very much that we see that in the years to come. Absolutely. Diversity and inclusion and all more voices, more choices. Exactly. I totally Absolutely. Agree. That's really great. Yes.
Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.